Hello, welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. We have arrived at the most momentous battle of the Boer War, the Battle of Spionkop. Its notoriety continues to this day, with war buffs travelling to the steep-sided hill half an hour's drive outside of Ladysmith in Natal, or KwaZulu-Natal as it's now known. The battle highlighted the failure of the British Army and its leadership to understand the requirements of modern warfare. They failed to cope with powerful long-range artillery and magazine rifle fire. They used outdated communications and intelligence gathering. Their chain of command was still the same as the Napoleonic era, and their leadership suffered from a lack of flexibility. You'd think, however, that by now, after nearly three months of warfare in South Africa, that they would have reconsidered their tactics. But imperialism and nationalism are hard-coded in people's minds, why change something that has led to an empire upon which the sun never sets? The military situation was dire. General Buller's defeat at Kalenzo on the 15th of December 1899 left him with the same strategic conundrum, how to relieve Ladysmith. His position before the start of hostilities had always been defensive behind the Tugela River as a Boer invasion of Natal was likely. Buller had no way of knowing just how divided the Boers were on this strategy. Most Boers didn't want to invade and were determined to fight a defensive war of their own. And General Buller had been incensed by General Penn Simons, who'd ignored his orders to stay south of the Tugela and advanced to the northern tip of Natal, where he'd won the Battle of Talana, but was killed in the process. Then General Sir George White, who'd arrived in the colony, had failed to pull his troops back from Ladysmith behind the Tugela and found himself besieged in the town with most of the British troops in that colony, 13,000. We've also heard about White's losses in the Boer assaults on Wagon Hill and Caesar's camp on the 6th of January 1900 in episode 14. White then signaled to Buller that he was unable to assist the relief operation. He'd lost nearly two dozen officers alone in these incidents. Buller planned his next attack further west of the Tugela to outflank the main Boer entrenched positions around the railway line. Substantial reinforcements had now arrived from Britain in the form of Warren's 5th Division. Also newly arrived at the Natal battlefront was Mahatma Gandhi. He was a lawyer working for Muslim Indian traders in Natal at the time and had decided to form a volunteer ambulance corps for the British Army. The Natal Indian Ambulance Corps, led by Gandhi, was composed of 300 free and 800 indentured labourers sent by their employers. Its task was to take the wounded brought by the Natal Volunteer Ambulance Corps from the battlefield and carry them to the railhead. The corps left for the front on December 14, 1899 from Durban. It reached the field hospital at Chivoli the next day and was immediately employed in carrying the wounded from the Battle of Colenso on the 15th. It was there that one of the wounded men whom Gandhi attended to personally was the only son of Field Marshal Lord Frederick Roberts. After Freddie Roberts was killed, the Indian Ambulance Corps were called in to carry his body from the field as an act of honour. Strange indeed. It's important to note that Gandhi used his involvement in the Anglo-Boer War as the means to force the British Raj in India to recognise Indians as equal citizens of the empire. As army medics, the Natal Indian Ambulance Corps had the potential to impress the imperial government with the unwavering courage and dedication. 
Additionally, Gandhi's participation fostered in him a religious awakening and spiritual preparedness for his future ascetic Hindu lifestyle of Brahmachari. Although the Indian Ambulance Corps did not immediately bring about an era of equality for all British citizens of the Empire in South Africa, their participation in the war proved their resilience to transcend the boundaries of the country and did lead the British military leadership to accept the concept of using non-whites in active roles in war. This was implemented during the First World War, for example. But now we're concentrating on the build-up to the momentous battle. Another famous person had arrived by train from Durban, Winston Churchill. He had escaped after being taken prisoner by the Boers and wanted to head straight back to the front to continue filing his reports as an embedded reporter working for the Morning Post newspaper as their official war correspondent. He arrived at Mount Freer, where the situation was uncomfortable for the rank-and-file soldier. They slept 17 to a tent, while the officers slept 3. Dust swirled through the shelters, and the temperature topped 36 degrees daily. Millions of flies buzzed around their food. Scorpions, snakes, and even tarantulas were a real danger, but their frightening spirit appeared undimmed. Perhaps that was a mistake, considering the action which was to take place. Buller had lost his nerve and lost the Battle of Colenso, but back at Mount Freer he began to feel more confident in his military tactics. White had sent a heliograph message that he could hold out for another six weeks. The route to Ladysmith, however, was blocked by over 10,000 Boers, armed with the latest rifles and now reinforced by artillery which were much better trained than they had been two months ago. It was partly this artillery that would make the British pay dearly at Spioncorp. Buller was awaiting reinforcements too. As we heard, Sir Charles Warren's 5th Division arrived. Warren was another British career officer who had experience in South Africa. He was hated by the Isitkosa in the Transkei, to the south of the colony of Natal, as he'd been instrumental in the British success in what was called the Transkei War of 1876. His methods had been extreme, burning down entire Tkosa homesteads as he hunted down the Isitkosa leadership. Warren had also put down a Boer uprising in Bechuanaland, which is modern-day Botswana, so lots of experience. After a stint as head of police in London and then Singapore, and a politician in England, he was brought out of retirement in November 1899 and promoted. Warren arrived in Natal after Christmas and was surprised by the level of inactivity. Both the Boers and British had settled into their positions after the Battle of Colenso. Things weren't that bad for the British soldier. They had a pound of meat and a quarter pound each of bacon every day, along with bread, cheese, potatoes, tea, coffee, even lime juice. On Christmas and Boxing Day, they held a fair, including donkey races, and each man was given a quart of beer and farm milk, all watched from the nearby hills by the bemused Boers. Buller drank champagne, as usual. A storm on Boxing Day drenched the tents and led to hundreds of scorpions and tarantulas coming out of their holes, which the men dreaded. However, after three weeks of inactivity, both officers and men were perplexed. The Boers then sent a message across the Tugela, which read, How is Mr. Bula? When is he coming for his next hiding? After Warren arrived, Bula had over 30,000 troops available. White and Ladysmith then sent a message in mid-January, warning that many of his men were sick. In fact, over 2,000 were suffering from typhoid. That jolted Bula. So he finally came up with a plan. 
It was one destined for failure, but no one in the British army involved obviously had an inkling that this was their destiny. One school of thought by his officers was an idea to push forward quickly and directly to Tlangwani Hill through Colenso again. The other was a flanking manoeuvre to the west or the left over Portkita's drift. Buller had considered this approach before making the direct assault on Colenso on the 15th of December, but now he preferred the Portkita's drift option. However, this is where the tactics following a strategic decision went out of whack. Instead of a lightning attack on the drift and securing the opposite side of the Tequila River bank and then using weight of numbers to push towards Ladysmith, Buller dithered, which was his character. He thought there were more than 35,000 Boers over the river, as we know there were around 10,000. So just to make sure that he was numerically superior, the British commander decided to move his entire centre of operation from Colenso to Springfield near Port Drift and near Spionkop. This meant a four-day march, which would be made in full view of the Boers, a cumbersome and slow process, all based on Buller's desperate need to remain close to his beloved railway line. General Louis Boerter, on the Boer side, had guessed as much. The Boers described what happened next as watching the movements of a giant centipede. You could say slow-motion movements, perhaps. The British leader still hadn't fully grasped the fact that his men were not mobile enough, that there weren't enough horses, and that the railway line was more a millstone than an anchor. A few of his officers disagreed with the slow-motion method. They wanted a push to the Boers' left and their right, or eastwards, in the opposite direction of Putita's drift towards Vienen. Buller wouldn't even meet to discuss this idea, and on the 10th of January, the centipede began its shuffling move. 23,000 men, artillery, wagons, all slowly wound their way across the felt. What's truly baffling is that Buller left behind a quarter of his cavalry. What also became apparent to all was that it was rainy season in South Africa. The dry, dusty felt began to turn to mud, and through this clinging mud, Buller's men dragged their heavy artillery and wagons, which slowed things down still further. The rains brought some drinking water, but they also brought pain and suffering for the rank-and-file soldier. A Times correspondent wrote, The rain came through the air in a steady, teeming, straight downpour that threshed in one's ears. I wore an oilskin coat, but it was useless. The hills seemed to melt down like tallow under heat. The rain beat the earth into liquid, and the thick, earthy liquid ran down in terraced cascades. The division waded, sliding, sucking, pumping, gurgling through the mud. The horses floundered or tobogganed with all four feet together. The wagons lurched axle-deep and had to be dragged out with trebled teams of oxen. What should have taken a few days took a week, and the Boers were aghast at the incremental approach the British had taken. Denise Reitz, who we've heard from throughout this podcast series, before the start of the conflict, he decided to head home to Pretoria for a little rest and recreational R&R. So he arrived back in Pretoria and said to his father, the burghers thought there would be no more serious fighting, but he shook his head. Reitz's father ordered him straight back to the front, saying an attack by the British was imminent. So often in this conflict, 
We've heard how the fighters, particularly the Boers, believed the British would offer terms after they had experienced a terrible defeat. But we also know that for geopolitical reasons, this time the British wanted the Boers to accept their dominion once and for all. So Rates took a train back to the front just in time. Churchill had spent his time conducting his own reconnaissance, and he was not impressed with Portkita's drift as a crossing point. He wrote, The ground fell almost sheer 600 feet to the bottom of the valley. Beneath, the Tugela curled along like a brown and very sinuous serpent. Never have I seen such violent twists and bends in a river. One great loop bent towards me, and at the arch of this, the little ferry of Portitas floated, moored to ropes, which looked through the field glasses like a spider's web. While he looked through his glasses, Buller rode up with his staff, ignoring Churchill, and lay down and spent an hour looking through a telescope at the same drift. He had decided no action would be taken, though, before a fortnight's worth of supplies had been brought up to the army position. That slowed things down even further. Buller said after the war, had Buller attacked immediately, this battle would have taken on a very different hue. But hindsight is twenty twenty, so we'll continue. Buller once more dithered, then decided he actually wasn't going to make his main attack by Portuguese's drift after all. This was the historic decision that doomed his men. He had reconnoitred a position a few kilometres up the river and decided to cross there, which was also purely by chance, the Boers' weakest position. It was at Tricard's Drift, near the Rangeworthy Hills. So he'd split his attack as a kind of insurance, which military experts acknowledge is not the wisest tactic if you have no idea about the whereabouts of your enemy, nor clear intelligence about the size of the brigades opposing you. And thus, we are ready for this terrible clash, and will track the Battle of Spionkop and its ramifications next week. So join me then, and please check out our website, abwarpodcast.com, and the Facebook page, Anglo Boer War Podcast. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Goodbye.